If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. And today we are once again going to take a momentary pause from our regular study through the Gospel of Luke and embark on a short series on what I would call biblical church government or a healthy church leadership or church polity. I don't know, you can call it anything you want. Uh, but what that entails is getting a robust understanding of the office of elders, uh, followed by the office of deacon. And it's been on my heart to teach this to our church for some time because understanding God's design for how his church is to be governed and function is essential to the healthy growth and maturation of our church. And so over the next three, four weeks or so, uh, we will spend our time searching scripture on God's purpose and design for these two offices. And today we begin with the office of elders and we'll start by reading 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is what God's word says. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen. Let's pray together. O oh God, our Father, we ask now that you would not let us suffer to hear the voice of mere man. But we long and ask this morning to hear the voice of our chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we begin our study for the next several weeks on biblical church government, uh, some of you might be wondering why this is a big deal. Uh, perhaps the whole notion of offices in the church makes church sound much too formal. But we have to understand that none of this is man's idea or invention. But God has very meticulously designed and structured his church as her rightful builder with a formal blueprint as any good builder would and should instead of just throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks and and he has done this for his glory and for our good such that only when we follow his instruction can we experience the goodness of god and behold his glory better in the church but by that same token when a church is not built and ruled by god's clear blueprint then we suffer for it and the church is weakened by it. But there's something I've just noticed is, which is so widespread in the church today, is that we just have not taken the time to seriously study this blueprint that God has labored to give to us in his word. And instead, when it comes to church, for some reason, we, it's just perfectly fine for us to just run with whatever we've seen from culture, from tradition, uh, even church tradition in other churches, and assume that that must be the right way because that's all we've seen and that's always been that way. 
And so what we need to do uh, is to detox a lot of the assumptions and the presuppositions we've held about how church works and retrain our thinking with scripture. And we as a church, we need to learn God's blueprint because only when our church is built up according to God's design and standards, only then will we be a fruitful ministry of the gospel for the glory of God that's able to not only withstand, but flourish for many years to come. And this is uh, really important as it pertains to leadership in the church. Because if the word of God is the foundation of the church, as Ephesians 2.20 says, as represented by the apostles and the prophets, then spiritual leaders are the framing of the church, the framing of the house. You can have a really strong foundation, but if the framing is weak, if the studs are made out of balsa wood, the whole thing will collapse, even if the foundation is strong. And and so, listen, this is a, a passionate subject for me because healthy and biblically strong church leadership both nurtures you the congregation, and protects you. Uh, I haven't lived that long, but I've lived long enough, but more importantly, I've seen enough to know that almost everyone who is either hurt by the church or is unfed by the church, and so they are spiritually starved, is primarily because of unhealthy church leadership in some form or fashion, not primarily unhealthy church membership. And it's not because a congregation or the members cannot be ungodly. There are plenty of ungodly congregations out there. But it's that when a congregation is ungodly or spiritually immature, it's usually a sign that the church's leaders are ungodly and or spiritually immature. Because where the shepherds go, there the sheep follow. It's inevitable. And so understand that as I I teach on church polity, kind of fancy way of saying church government, I, I do so mainly pointing the barrel at myself as one of the elders of this church because we bear the heaviest weight of the responsibility for the congregation's spiritual well-being and livelihood. And God will hold us accountable. Now, on that note, we have to begin first with really clarifying how God has structured the spiritual leadership of his church, the org chart, if you will, the organization chart. Because this is usually the the fundamental misstep where we go off the script away from God's blueprint and then everything else follows from that. Now, I'm sure that many of us in this room who have been in churches over the years, when we think about church leadership, some of us have this assumption already set in stone, a, a picture in our minds, that's really, really difficult to undo, where we immediately think of the pastor, the big boss up at the top. And underneath the top of the pyramid, uh, if there's anyone at all, uh, there's usually or sometimes a group of guys called the elders. Who knows what they do? Maybe they will often run the business side of the church in the background. Uh, generally, they're the ones who hire the pastor, and if things go south, they'll be the ones to fire the pastor. Uh, but that's mainly it. 
Uh, and, and in the best case scenario, there's a good relationship. So they're, they're, so they're like a very supportive board of directors who oversee the pastor or pastors and uh, their work. But for the most part, they observe as spectators what the pastors are hired to do. And they're there to mainly give their approval or their disapproval. Or sometimes there's no group of elders and it's just the pastor and uh, a council of deacons. Uh, who essentially do kind of the same thing, running just the business ops of the church and make some logistical decisions. Or it's just the pastor and nobody else, and he just rules with their iron fist or something like that. Uh, but one way or another, the most common understanding and practice of church government is that there is the man in charge, the quote-unquote head pastor, and all this elder deacon stuff either is optional or take a back seat. Sure, the Bible mentions something about them, but in all practicality, they're really not that important or influential. That's how many churches think and operate. But that's not how God designed it to be at all. Instead, what we see in Scripture is that God has established the office of elders to constitute the spiritual leadership of His church. And the office of deacons functions as a special set-apart assistance to the elders, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. But that's all the Bible mentions. Elders and deacons. Listen to how, how Paul writes to the church in Philippi. In Philippians 1, 1, the first verse of Philippians, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, so he's saying to, to the church, the Christians at the church in Philippi, with the overseers, another way of saying elders, and deacons. So hey, I'm writing to the church at Philippi, to all of you, the congregation, and then also to the elders and the deacons. Why is there no mention of pastors? Because pastors are elders, and elders are pastors. End of story. You see, God has designed spiritual leaders in his church to consist of a group of men called elders whose calling and responsibility is to pastor and shepherd the church. In other words, the Bible gives no distinction to pastor and elder as a separate position or office. They are one and the same in God's eyes. And we see this very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 5. Here we have Three terms that the Bible uses to refer to the office of the church's spiritual leaders. Elder, shepherd, and overseer. Uh, elder, it's a term that's really, it originates from, from all the way back in Israel, uh, Israel's days in the Old Testament, uh, to essentially represent one who is mature and experienced, spiritually speaking, uh, to denote this idea that this is someone that you would want to listen uh, to and to learn from. So we have elder, and then we have shepherd, or another way to put it is pastor. The word pastor just means shepherd. It's a Latin word. It means herdsman, pastor, not al pastor, like as in the tacos, but, <laughs> but in the Latin sense, herdsman, a shepherd. Every time you see the word shepherd in the Bible, it's just you can replace that with pastor. It's the same thing. And then third, overseer which is one who exercises oversight. Uh, it's also known as a bishop. That's the English word that's tr translated from the Greek and the Latin. It gets kind of confusing. But anyway, 
That's what it is. So you sometimes hear the word bishop. That's what overseer is. All one and the same. Because if you look at the text, these three terms are interchangeably used. Peter writes, so I exhort the elders among you. I'm talking to you, the elders. In verse 2, I want you to shepherd the flock of God. Actually, it's not I want you. It's God wants you to shepherd the flock. I want you to pastor the flock. And you do it by exercising oversight. By functioning as overseers. All one. It's all referring to one and the same office. Elder is the title of the office. Overseer is a descriptive title, which tells us the role of the office. And shepherd pastor is a vivid metaphor for the spiritual task that elders are called to do. And so what this means is that in God's eyes, there is no spiritual difference whatsoever between a pastor who is in full-time ministry and a quote-unquote lay elder who has a day job and serves the church in that office. They both are equally called by God to be ministers of the gospel. And that's why technically speaking, just technically, uh, the term lay elder is kind of a misnomer. Because all elders are clergy, not laity. There are no different classes of elders. Now, I know what people mean by lay elder. You don't have to, you know, I won't police your, your verbiage, but the, the, the more accurate term would be to say that some of the elders in the church are vocational elders, which is what we often call pastors. And others are non-vocational elders. Or we can say some are staff elders because they make a living uh, through, the, through the gospel in the church. They're paid by the church because it's their full-time job, whereas others are non-staff elders. They volunteer their time outside of their day job uh, to do that. But again, these are nothing but merely practical distinctions that have no bearing on the spiritual realities or the spiritual responsibilities. Before God, all elders, whether vocational or not, whether they went to seminary or not, are completely equal in his eyes. And so they are equally called to the same weighty calling of bearing the spiritual responsibility for the congregation. Now, look, you, you can call me whatever you want, okay? If you want, you can call me pastor. You can call me elder. You can just call me Sam because that's my name. You can call me Hey You for all I care. These are just names and titles, okay? It's fine. As long as we understand the, the true nature of biblical church polity, regardless of whatever terms we use and prefer. Namely, that pastors are elders and elders are pastors. This is the one singular office of spiritual leadership in the church that God has ordained. It's not big boss, you know, Mr. Head Pastor up at the top ruling as a monarch. But it's elders, plural, who are called to pastor and govern God's church. You see, once we grasp what the office of elders is, we then quickly see that God intended for the local church to be governed by a plurality of elders who share the same equal spiritual weight, provided that there are enough qualified men in a church to constitute a plurality. Now turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Uh, Acts is a very important book in the Bible for many reasons, one of which being that we see the early nascent church in action, and we can gather a lot from 
what's recorded in Acts, uh, seeing some of the mistakes and pitfalls of the early church, but also their successes and the order of how church was done. Now in Acts chapter 14, uh, down in verse 21, this is uh, Paul with Barnabas going through various cities throughout Asia Minor. But it says in verse uh, 21 that when they had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, which is one of the cities in Asia Minor, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now notice verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Multiple elders in each local church. Now if that's not clear enough, turn to chapter 20. A few chapters forward, uh, Acts chapter 20, uh, this is Paul at Ephesus in verse 17. So Paul goes to the church at Ephesus, uh, but before he gets there, this is what happens, verse 17. Now from Miletus, where Paul was, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he spoke to them. See, the local church in Ephesus had elders, multiple elders. It's not because there were multiple churches in Ephesus. In the early church, there was only one local church per city. And you don't see Paul saying, hey, let me talk to the pastor, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. No, he called the elders. In fact, look down in verse 28. As Paul exhorts these group of elders in Ephesus, he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And do you see the language there? Again, interchangeable terminology of all three terms. Paul is speaking to the elders. There we have one. And he's reminding them of the role of overseer to which God has called them. There we have number two. And number three, Paul uses the shepherding metaphor of caring for the flock. Pastoring the flock, caring for the sheep. It's all one and the same office, which is designed by God to be filled by a plurality of men that he has called to the task. Now, what exactly is the task then that God has called elders to do what is the calling of elders well we see it set forth plainly if we go back to first peter chapter 2 peter says there shepherd god's flock and he says do so exercising oversight now again as i mentioned exercising oversight is where the term overseer comes from it's the same root but but what does that mean well if you really break down the word, it, it, it means precisely what it says, to see over, or to put another way, to watch over the flock. It's to spiritually oversee the congregation. Now, in one sense, what this means is that elders are the ones that God has appointed to govern the church, to watch over the church as a whole. And this is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17 that elders who rule well are worthy of double honor. 
But there is a ruling work that elders do. It doesn't mean that elders are supreme rulers, but that God has charged them with the task of guiding and steering the ship, if you will, of the local church according to biblical truth and biblical principles. And so this shows us that the church has a clear order of being governed, of being governed by select, re- le- uh, select leaders uh, as opposed to just being a round table of an open forum. Now, what I mean is this. Uh, some churches function with a polity, a governance, of what's called congregationalism, pure congregationalism where the congregation as a whole makes the decisions collectively. And how that's usually played out is at members' meetings, the members vote on virtually all the decisions to be made by the church. They decide on everything altogether, on everything. And as nice of a democracy as that sounds, that is a recipe for disaster. Because you just cannot function like that. Uh, I've heard horror stories of pure congregationalist churches fighting and splitting up because they couldn't agree on what color the new carpet should be in the main worship building. That is ridiculous. But that's what happens when you end up voting on every little tiny decision together. And God has not intended his church to be run that way because that is a church effectively with no government now let me put it this way pop quiz going back to u.s civics and government class is our country the u.s of a is this nation governed by a pure democracy i see some very you know strong heads shaking no bingo you got you got an a plus the answer is no Absolutely not. And thank God it's not. Because pure democracy is anarchy. It's, it's mob rule. It's to be ruled by the mobs. And the founding fathers of this country knew that pure democracy would be nothing but chaos. And so the way America was designed and constituted was to be a representative democracy, a democratic republic, whereby... This nation is built on the basic principle of power to the people. But that power is exercised in the people electing their own representative leaders. And those elected leaders then represent the people in the way they function in the office of leadership. But if the citizens demanded to have a say in every decision that the White House or or Congress makes... Or, or, or demanded an exhaustive explanation of everything before giving leaders permission to proceed with any action, we would go nowhere. This country would fall apart. We would be a chaotic, disorderly society of everyone asserting what's right in his own eyes. Mob rule, no government. And that's why we're a democratic republic. Now, if that's the wisdom with which this earthly nation is governed, then how much more God's holy nation? the church god has wisely established order where elders are to govern the church and the congregation is called to affirm and elect their representative elders who are proven as qualified trustworthy men called to the task 
And just as we saw in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, the church is uh, to appoint such elders and then commit them to God, entrusting their work and service to God rather than insisting on having a say in every little thing or having, uh, adopting a shareholder mentality where the members' votes are viewed as giving permission to the elders to proceed. The church can't function like that. And no, no corporate entity uh, can, can function like that. Now, in our church, uh, as the members know, we have measured elements of congregationalism, though we are led by elders. Uh, the members do vote on, on some things, but only some things that the elders put out for a vote. And, and the reason is because we also see in Acts examples of congregational affirmation on certain big decisions. And we think that that's healthy, but again, that's not an open invitation for any member to initiate, hey, I don't like this, let's put a vote, let's put it to a vote. That's not, that's not how church govern, government works. Because fundamentally, a healthy church is one that understands this clear order that God has established, where the elders govern with as much transparency as possible, although that's not always easy or possible, and likewise, the congregation is called to support and affirm the elders' decisions as joyfully as possible, even if it's difficult to do so at times or hard to fully understand. As Peter says in verse 5 of his letter, likewise, you who are younger, uh, speaking generally to, to those who are not elders, but Peter could also be speaking specifically to actually younger people in the congregation who are generally prone to be uh, argumentative, as we see in Paul's letters to Timothy. But he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, but then, Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Elders are to humbly serve their congregation, and the congregation is to humbly submit to the elders. That is order and peace in the church. Now, let's take a moment to recognize that that is a lot of responsibility and authority that is being granted to elders by virtue of their office. And so, precisely for this reason, it is absolutely critical that congregations do not nominate and elect elders flippantly. The church must not take the office of elders lightly. But every man who is appointed to the office must be tested, known, vetted, and qualified by God's highest standards. And we'll talk about the qualifications of elders more next Sunday, uh, Lord willing. But, but this is why nominating elders in a church must be a very slow process with thorough testing and thorough training. And the congregation must be given ample opportunity to see and observe the man before he is publicly ordained to the office of elder. Because at the end of the day, the task of elders is not to just run the operations of the church. Look, I mean, if you do that poorly, okay, whatever, this organization dies then. But far more important than that, far more at stake than that, as Peter says, they are called to shepherd the flock, to shepherd Jesus' precious sheep. That is to say, that elders are entrusted with souls. 
You see, the bread and butter of the elder's task is not primarily overseeing the church by making organizational decisions, although those things are important to an extent, but it's to provide spiritual oversight to the congregation. It's to watch over the growing sheep and foster their spiritual growth. As Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. They have to give an account because that's how much they are being stewarded. That's what a spiritual shepherd does. Now, how are elders called to shepherd the church? Well, what does spiritual shepherding look like in action? Well, we can gather a number of things once we unpack and apply that spiritual metaphor of shepherding. One is that you feed the congregation with the word of God, just as much as a shepherd feeds his sheep. You feed the congregation the word. That is, that the elders are called to teach the word, both in public and in private. This is an essential qualification for an elder to be able to teach. Because man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus said to Peter, remember in John 21, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to tend my sheep. And he wasn't thinking of just bread and, and fish. He's talking about the word of God. Because God's people grow with the rich diet of his word. Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so teaching is essential. Elders are called to be teachers, which also includes discipleship, discipling people in the church, raising them up in the Lord. And with that, it's also that they're called to watch over each believer's spiritual growth, each member of the church. An elder is called by God to constantly observe the sheep and be concerned for their spiritual maturation. Never to do it in a heavy-handed way or, or policing their lives, but out of a spiritually parental heart, as it were, seeking their healthy growth, evaluating them, encouraging them, being an example for them. It's about knowing your flock and bearing them on your heart day and night, taking spiritual inventory and, and, and the spiritual temperature of each of the members. Who among this flock is growing well? Who is struggling? Who needs focused care? And not just evaluating that, but actually doing something about it. Going and teaching and feeding and discipling. Shepherding also means to run after the sheep who are straying. Uh, an elder can't be afraid of conflict or the fear of imposing on other people, but he must run headlong to spiritual crises and to difficult people. That's what a shepherd does. Fueled by love and courage to go after the hundredth sheep, no matter how far it has gone or where it has gone, no matter how much it resists coming back home. It involves correcting believers who are falling into error, who are, who are falling into unrepentant sin, wandering away from the fold of Christ, chasing after them and calling them to return to the Lord, pleading with them and reminding them of His goodness and mercy, how good it is to be in the, in the nearness of Christ. Shepherding also means to mend wounded sheep. 
to go to those who are especially hurting from trials, to those who are hurting from physical pain and suffering, those who are hurting from the consequence of their own sins, and those who are hurting from just deep discouragement and despair in their own hearts. And God calls elders to shepherd the wounded in His flock. The wounded are of, of, of special care and concern on His heart. And elders are called to share that same heart of the great shepherd. God calls them to shepherd the wounded by counseling them in the gospel, ministering the hope of Christ to them through His word. You see, elders are called to be counselors who are biblically saturated in all their thoughts and deeds and their words of wisdom. And elders are called also to pray for and pray with the sheep. Like at the end of the day, no man called to any office has any power to do anything. But an elder worth his salt will spend his time in prayer, lifting up the sheep to the good shepherd himself, Jesus Christ alone. Prayer is a key ministry of an elder. You see, these kinds of things are what God has tasked the office of elder. This is not the job description of just, quote-unquote, the pastor, the hired gun, separate from an elder. No, 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 it's one and the same. And in the New Testament, the word pastor or shepherd, especially as it pertains to the office of elder, the word pastor or shepherd is used far more as a verb than as a noun. Elders shepherd the flock of God, pastor them. Pastor, shepherd, it's much more a task than it is a title. And so all of this is what God has called all the elders to do in a church, vocational or not. Now, certainly there is a legitimacy of different degrees and focus of the role of elder, uh, of a given elder within a group of elders. For instance, it's not surprising that you know, one of the elders, usually a vocational elder, would serve as the primary teaching elder. Even Paul recognizes in 1 Timothy 5.17 that within the same office, some will be especially laboring in the ministry of teaching the word. Although all are called to teach the word and all must do it, some are going to be especially focused on that. Um, and on a practical level, a vocational elder will have more time to devote to shepherding the church because that's his full-time job. And usually, a vocational elder will have more formal training and will also grow more quickly in his giftedness because he has more opportunities and time to exercise those gifts of ministry. With that said, however, none of this changes the fact that God has called all of them, vocational or not, to the same standard of excellence to teach and pastor his people. I mean, think of it like this. Has it ever crossed your mind that it is perfectly right and good for, for non-vocational elders, for quote-unquote lay elders, to officiate weddings for church members, to administer baptism, to preach on the pulpit, to do everything that the quote-unquote so-called pastor does and is hired for. They may not do it as often as vocational elders, but it's just as authoritative, just as powerful, and just as profitable. 
because they are gospel ministers just as equally as those whom we call pastors today. That is the high calling of the office of elder. And when a church not only operates like that, but when the congregation grows to understand and expect this kind of leadership, then it is a sign of a healthy, mature church that really believes and practices God's design of the plurality of elders, a true plurality. And God has intentionally designed it this way out of his intimate care for his church, even out of a protective love for his church. I, I cannot stress enough how vital it is to the church's welfare to have a true plurality of elders because it guards the church from a lot of potential dangers. Uh, One is the blatant kind of guarding the church from tyranny. Uh, One man running the show, having unrestrained authority in the church. It's very much contrary to what Peter says in his letter, to shepherd the flock, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, to be humble servants who model godliness and truth. And if you ever walk into a church and it's run more like a monarchy or a dictatorship, you better run for your life because you're about to get uh, eaten alive by a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Absolute power corrupts absolutely because man's heart and nature is sinful. And this is no different in the context of God's church. And so God in his wisdom has implemented a plurality of elders to guard against basic human depravity such that there would be different voices and perspectives within a council of elders. A separation of powers, if you will. And this is necessary because no pastor, no elder, is above the temptation toward authoritarianism. Because we're all proud sinners who want things to be done our way. Or go hit the highway. Now that's the very blatant kind. Where a single individual rules over the church with absolute power. But there's another more subtle, inconspicuous kind of a danger, but equally dangerous. That even if there are multiple spiritual leaders in the church, the church may still be practically built upon the ministry and persona of one man. And this happens much more frequently and easily than we think. And this is why having a biblical understanding and practice of, a, of the plurality of elders is essential, along with strong, robust men to fill that office, whether vocational or not, such that the church can see very clearly that there is no class distinction within that office of elders, and that the senior pastor is not any more of an elder than the youth pastor, assuming that the youth pastor is actually a qualified elder, not just some college kid doing a ministry gig on the side. But you see, God's design is meant to teach the church how to rightly think about the church's identity. That it's not about one man, the pastor. But it's about Christ Jesus pastoring his church through the instrumentality of qualified elders whom he has called. Now, let me say this too, that 
even in churches where there is a, a, a functioning plurality of elders, you can still end up with a practical monarchy. Because the pastor, over their years, who perhaps planted the church or built it from, from the ground up, he could have been surrounding himself with yes-men to fill that office. Men who have been groomed and trained for the office in his own image. That is very, very dangerous. Look, if you want to know the kind of men that I am on the lookout for in the coming years as the Lord raises up elders in the church in the future, what I look for, assuming that you know, all the qualifications are there, which is a big if, I look for who would I be happy to submit to? To put it another way, which man aspiring to the office and qualified for it, do I trust that his loyalty is not to me, but it is only to Christ our Lord? And that if I ever make an error that is not biblical, that this man's immediate instinct would not be to do some PR work on my behalf. But he would correct me and that he would be unafraid to tell me I'm wrong to my face. Because such a man truly fears God and God alone. And his conscience is bound to the word of God, not to the words of men. That is a godly man. And that's the kind of men the church needs. That's the kind of men the office of elder must be filled with. Because whether we intend to or not, the church can easily become centered on a cult personality. And I refuse to let that happen in this church. That's the only thing that would ever make me want to leave. I don't want to leave. I'll die here as the Lord lets me. That's the only thing that will make me want to leave. If my name or anyone's name is associated with this church more than Jesus' name, he must increase and I must decrease. I am not worthy to even untie the straps of, of the sandals of his feet as, the, as John the Baptist said. I mean, where is this spirit in our churches today? Where is this spirit in pulpits today? You know, I, I think we just have to be honest as Christians and confess that we have been more influenced by the world than we realize. Where the church has been fostering a culture of celebritizing men who teach the Bible well. The leaven of Hollywood culture is more pervasive in the church than we think. And I'm convinced that this is our golden calf of our generation. And God is dishonored by it. Listen, Maranatha Bible Church is not Pastor Sam's church or anyone's church. Don't ever call it that. Do not profane God's holy church by calling it something like that. The church's one foundation, 
This church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And we must not be like practical Catholics who just end up setting up our own evangelical popes. Christ alone is the head of the church, the head of every local church. He is the chief shepherd, as Peter says. He is the true senior pastor of this church. And listen, if you're here this morning and you you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord, let the very design of God's church prove to you that this is not what we do here. This is not some man-made religion of man's invention. But this is the truth of the living God, which is why no man is the center of God's church. But God alone is. And he has intentionally engineered his church in a way to make it clear that we do not follow the doctrines of men as all the world religions do. But we believe and we worship the one true God through Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And we gather to preach his word that we might hear his voice, not man's voice. That we might embrace and subject ourselves to his authority not man's authority. And so you can be sure that the gospel is the very truth of God. That we are sinners, hopelessly condemned by a righteous and holy God. But in his exceeding mercy and grace, he has sent Jesus, his son, as the good shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep. That he went to the cross to bear the weight of sin on the cross, that he might be condemned for sinners like us and he calls the whole world to repent of sin and to confess our condemnation our rightful condemnation and to believe the good news of the truth of his death and resurrection for the complete forgiveness of our sins and when you do then you will know the joy of not only recognizing jesus as the ruler and head over the church but also as the ruler and head of your own life and soul as it was meant to be. And so let the church's spiritual architecture preach to you the voice of the architect himself and come to Christ by faith and embrace him as the rightful Lord of the universe and the Lord of your life. And church, as we we spend these weeks studying the offices of the church, this must continually be at the forefront of our minds. The preeminence and the supremacy of Christ. May it be that NBC would exist to glorify and magnify the greatness of Jesus alone. That's what the biblical understanding of the office of elders is meant to teach us and show us. And church, would you be praying continually that the Lord would be kind and faithful to raise up such godly men in the church, to continue to shepherd and govern this church to that end for generations to come until that day when he, the chief shepherd, appears. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we are so grateful that We are not like the world lost in our ways, not knowing our left hand from our right hand. 
but we hear the voice of our shepherd. He knows us and we know him. And it is our joy and comfort to follow him and to submit to him as the Lord of all. And we thank you for even reminding us of that so visibly and vividly through the Lord's Supper, which we take regularly. That as we do so, what we're doing is we gather around the table of the King. And in so doing, we remember who is the only King, that He is the blessed monarch and ruler who has given His life for us, that we might take all of Himself to us and He might take all of ourselves to Him, that He alone is worthy as the Lamb who was slain for us. Oh Lord, would you remind us of that? And would that be the very DNA of our church and help us to live under his supreme and loving reign? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.